Welcome back to Inside the Boardroom, a podcast from the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. I am Jamie Plusser, the Assistant Dean for Marketing and Communications. Our goal with the series, as always, is to bring you thoughts, ideas, inspiration, and points of view from business leaders and academic leaders from Minnesota and beyond. This episode features a discussion with Quaylen Ellengrude, a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. Ellen Grude speaks about women in the workplace and improving diversity and inclusion. The talk was part of the Carlson School's virtual First Tuesday series. Let's listen in. Wonderful. So today we're going to talk about women in the workplace. And this has been a six-year partnership that we've had with Lean In, and it's published every year in October in the Wall Street Journal. In fact, it was just published hot off the press about a month ago. Uh, Of course, this year, the benchmarking looked a little bit different as we dug into the impact of COVID-19. But it is the broadest and deepest benchmarking of its kind, covering over 300 different companies across industries. We'll talk about a couple of those industries here today. Uh, Those companies collectively cover 12 million employees, and we did a deep dive survey across 40,000 employees, as well as um, a number of dozen interviews as well. So if you flip to the next page, Amy, a couple different areas we'll touch on. One is what does the talent pipeline look like overall? And then what does that look like differently within each industry? We'll also talk about workplace experiences. How do men, women, uh, both by gender, by race, by sexual orientation, experience the workplace differently? What's been the impact of COVID-19? And as we look ahead, what can we expect going forward? And as you step back from all of these challenges, what can companies do to accelerate progress and what can individuals do as well? I shared a bit with you about the context of this research. This is our sixth year. So let's jump in on the next page and the overall talent pipeline uh, on the next page. If there's one page that you remember from all of this, hopefully it's this talent pipeline. Maybe if you just flip to the next page, perfect. Uh, This is the cross industry average talent pipeline, starting on the left side with the entry level. And if you look at the third row from the bottom, that row that says 2020, again, the blended average across all industries in 2020, started with 47% of entry level employees as women. Then it drops by nine percentage points to 38% at that first level manager and then five or so percent every single level to senior manager, another four point drop at VP, senior vice president, and then C-suite, 21% of the C-suite, meaning direct reports to the CEO are women. So one in five women in the C-suite are, uh, one in five direct reports to the CEO are women. And so you might look at that overall pipeline and think, all right, well, it starts off at 47%, pretty good. And it is pretty good, right? It's almost 50-50, but do keep in mind that in the United States, 56% of college degrees go to women. It's been that way for quite a while, between 56-57%. It's quite consistent with other developed countries. So there's already quite a big drop-off between college grads and entry level across all industries. Then there's that nine percentage point drop that we'll talk about a bit more. That's what we call that broken rung of first promotions. And after a nine percentage point drop, of that magnitude in a pipeline, there's almost nothing I can do to make the rest of the pipeline equal, right? We can pull a lot of levers and we'll talk about what are those levers today, but you can only make it less unequal in the rest of the pipeline, you can't equalize it. And then you go all the way to the other end and that 21%, one in five people reporting to the CEO who are women, even that belies a bit of the balance of power in the typical C-suite because women are much more likely to be the CHRO or the chief legal counsel CFO, CIO, Chief Investment Officer, for example. These are important staff roles, but they're less likely to have line roles, leading the biggest business unit or the largest P&L or the second largest P&L. And if you look at S&P 500 CEOs who are promoted from within every single year, 99 to 100% of them are promoted from running the biggest P&L or the second biggest P&L to CEO role. Very rarely do you hear of you know, we had our head of HR promoted to CEO. And so if we wanna shift the five, now 6%, edging towards 7% or so of S&P 500 CEOs who are women, we need to shift the staff role versus line role mix in the C-suite. Let's look, actually, if you flip back to that same page, let's also look at the fourth row from the bottom. 
women of color, and women of color in this survey is Black, Latina, and Asian women all added together. Women of color make up 18% of the entry level, just the same as they make up as men of color make up, but then it drops pretty dramatically to 3% in the C-suite. So put another way, one out of 35 people reporting to the CEO are either a Black, Latina, or Asian woman all added together. That is four times lower than men of color collectively. And so that intersectionality between race and gender there is quite a challenge. Um, and every year we look at that number, it's between three, 4%, now back down to 3%. It's been uh, shockingly low for quite a while. So that was the cross industry talent pipeline. And you see those same numbers as we just looked at across the top in blue, starting at 47% of the entry level, dropping by nine percentage points, all the way down to 21% in the C-suite. But different industries look quite differently. There's actually three archetypes or patterns of industries and what the talent pipeline looks like. And we've got some examples here. The first kind of pattern of what an industry looks like in terms of talent pipeline is it's got a choke point at the very beginning of the funnel. It's got a hard time attracting women into the top end of the funnel. IT services and telecom is like this. A lot of technology industries are like this. Uh, oil and gas is like this, as not many women want to be stationed on an oil rig as an example. This is where the choke point is at the top of the funnel and continues throughout the middle of the funnel at that senior manager and VP level and continues on all the way through SVP and C-suite. That's the first pattern, pretty narrow throughout. The second pattern is what you see here in banking and consumer finance, professional and informational services. It's got a broader front end of the funnel. In fact, here we see the majority of entry level workers are women. There's a bit of a choke point there at manager and an even stronger choke point there at senior manager and VP level. So broad at the top, narrows in the middle, and then of course, no industry has really solved this at the most senior levels, or at least that well at the C-suite. Uh, so a choke point there at the bottom. Interestingly, in banking and consumer finance and professional and informational services, you do see the majority of uh, women at that entry level. A lot of that is because the percentage of employees is skewed towards call centers, and there tend to be a lot more women in call centers. And so you see greater representation there, sometimes even to that first manager, so typically managers in call centers. But then as you get into senior manager VP levels, the representation shrinks. And finally, in healthcare systems and services, that's the third pattern of industry where it's pretty broad, 75% of entry-level workers, nurses, et cetera, um, receptionists are women. Pretty broad, even through the middle there, senior managers, 57%, 51% even at the VP level, and it's not till the C-suite level that it narrows. So those would be the three patterns and how representation looks different across different industries. But let's look at that first choke point, that broken rung. If you think about that 47% dropping by nine percentage points, put another way, for every 100 men who make that first promotion to manager, only 85 women make that promotion and only 58 black women make that promotion. And if I were to aggregate that promotion gap across industries across five years, that's the equivalent of 1 million missing women in leadership positions. And what you see in the talent pipeline that we started with is the aggregation of five years here, five years there, decades upon decades of missing millions of women in leadership positions, which is why you see the representation that you do across that talent pipeline. So solving this broken first rung is a critical first step. We also see that how employees, men and women view the workplace uh, and whether they think it's fair or not is one of the biggest elements uh, most tightly correlated with how they are engaged at work, whether they would recommend their workplace to others. So employees, men and women who view their workplaces there are three times more likely to be engaged in their work, three times more likely to wanna stay in their job and three times more likely to recommend their place of work to friends and family. And so how does, how you view your workplace as fair differ by gender and race. Uh, in short, men are most likely to view their workplace um, as fair. But after that, what you see is white women are next most likely to view their workplace as fair. And we asked a range of questions from, do you think you have equal opportunity for growth as your peers? Do you think promotions at your company are based on fair and objective criteria? And do the best opportunities go to the most deserving employees? So men are most likely to say yes. And you might argue that you know, all of these numbers are not as high as we wish they were across the board. 
uh, followed by white women, typically lesbian women, and then some pattern of Asian, Latina, and Black women least likely to believe that their workplace is fair. And given that promotion gap that we just saw for every 100 men who are promoted, 58 Black women, it's no surprise why there may be this gap in perception of equality in the workplace. We also took a look at microaggressions and microaggressions are those small paper cuts at work every day. They could be conscious, they could be unconscious and they range here are a number of examples from, I needed to provide judgment of or evidence of my judgment or I had my judgment questioned in my area of expertise. It could be something like I was interrupted or spoken over or others were either given or took credit for my ideas. Uh, it could be that I heard demeaning remarks about somebody like me. And what you see here is the flip side of the pattern that we just saw in terms of thinking about or, or viewing your workplace as equal. Men, as you see in this first column, do experience microaggressions at work. Everybody experiences them to some level. White women are next most commonly um, experiencing microaggressions at work with the one exception of over the majority of white women being interrupted or spoken over. Um, followed by generally Asian women, Latinas, and then Black women, um, the most likely to experience these microaggressions. So 40 to 43% of Black women needing to provide evidence of their judgment or being interrupted or spoken over. Uh, and about a quarter of them hearing others surprise at their language skills or other abilities. An interesting call out here for Asian women, two thirds of them have had others take or get credit for ideas. So some interesting patterns, both by gender, um, but also by race. We also took a look at what we call onlys. And there's a lot of different ways to be an only. You can be the only black man on an all white male team. You can be the only woman on an all male team. And here we took a look at women onlys versus all other women who are not the onlys on their teams. And what you see on the left side is women onlys more than their female peers wanna be promoted to the next level and they wanna be a top executive. And when you dig underneath and ask why, more than their peers, they're more likely to say, I want to show that it can be done. I want to create, you know, be an example to others and, and be a trailblazer. On the right side of the page, though, they're also more likely to think about leaving. They're more likely to think about leaving their job often and think about leaving in the next couple of years. And when, again, you dig underneath and ask why, some of this is this notion of always being on, uh, always being under a microscope. It's being expected to represent others of other women, for example. Um, and that challenge and sort of emotional burden can be heavy. Uh, and this has really changed how we think about diversity. I think before we might have peanut butter spread diversity across teams. So if you have 100 people and only 10 women within that, before we might have said, all right, 10 teams, let's put one woman on each team. And that results in 10 only experiences for 10 individuals who are very much feeling like the other, not fitting in, having a hard time connecting to other people like them, and probably leaving relatively soon. Now we would say, all right, 100 people, 10 women, let's create two teams, 50-50. Let's show what these teams can do and how they should be structured. Yes, in parallel, let's solve the issue for those other eight teams, but let's not lose the diversity and the foundation that we're starting to build. Let's create a great example and a great environment where they're connected and build on that diversity so that we can solve the problem more broadly. So that's the experience of onlys. We also looked at sponsorship and mentorship networks. And even before you look at the com composition of their networks, what we see is that men activate their networks more frequently. If you ask a male and a female VP who were just promoted to that role, did four or more people help you get here? 15 percentage point more of the men will say yes, because they have broader and more activated sponsorship networks. What you see here is similar. Women on the left side are more likely to have either mostly female or more equal networks. Men are more likely to have mostly men or more equal networks. And if you combine this with the talent pipeline that we saw up front, what you see is that women have more junior networks overall, and often, frankly, more narrow networks. And how do you equalize that playing field so that we're having similar sponsorship and mentorship networks across genders? We also asked men and women, um, both by race uh, and by gender, do you want to be promoted? And when you ask, do you want to be promoted to the next level, men and women answer yes at the same rate. 
But when you change the question and say, do you want to be a top executive, a CEO, sort of C-suite leader? Women on the left side here will say yes at a lower rate than men. Uh, and interestingly, women and men of color will say yes at a higher rate than their white male peers. And again, when you get underneath and ask why, more of them will say, in addition to the financial benefits of that, I want to be a role model. I want to be a trailblazer and show that it can be done. Um, so interesting kind of patterns, both by gender and race. We've also seen some really rapid changes in dual career couples. And as a member of a dual career couple myself, um, what we've seen even in four or five years is now 81% of women in our survey are part of a dual career couple versus 56% of men. And this is uh, pretty consistent across levels, although of course it differs quite a bit within each company. So four out of five women in a dual career couple. And if you combine that on the next page with who is doing more housework, overall in the United States, women do about two times, two to two and a half times as much what we call unpaid care work as men. So shopping, cooking, cleaning, taking care of kids, taking care of parents, et cetera. Um, and even in our survey of kind of Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies, we asked men and women in this survey, do you do all or most of the housework? 54% of these women employees said, yes, I do all or most of the housework compared to 22% of men. So that's on the left side. And I thought, you know, well, maybe that's a particular situation. Who knows what that family dynamic is? There's lots of things and, and agreements that can go on. What if you're the primary breadwinner? So you make the majority of financial income in your family. We asked men and women, do you continue to do all or most of the housework when you're the primary breadwinner? 12% of the men in that situation said, yes, I'm the primary breadwinner and I do all or most of the housework versus 43% of women. And so while we have many more women in dual career couples, they're also much more likely to continue to do a lot of the juggling at work and uh, more of it at home as well. And so if that is kind of the backdrop and the fact base of what both gender and racial equality looks like in the workplace, how has COVID-19 affected this? I think it's a, a story of two steps forward, one step back. And I hope it's that and not two steps backwards um, and hopefully one slow step, potentially one slow step forward. On the left side, uh, what we know is that pre-COVID flexibility was the number one thing that both men and women wanted from their employers. And COVID-19 has given us dramatic improvements in flexibility very, very quickly. It's also um, made it so both from companies and workers' perspectives that um, many are thinking about flexibility in lots of ways. So lifting geographic constraints, working more flexibly across the board. On the flip side though, it has also increased a lot of the work, both work in from a family perspective and uh, work and intensity uh, at work as well. And when you add all of this together, what we see is that one in four women are considering either leaving the workforce altogether or downshifting their careers. So taking a job that's less intense, less strenuous, going part-time for instance. Uh, and that would result in about 2 million women potentially exiting the workforce uh, and some more diverse groups uh, more greatly impacted than others. That would basically erase all the progress we've seen in the six years since we started this benchmarking. We looked at uh, what the broad challenges were and we asked employees to rate your top three challenges. And pretty consistently, we see anxiety over either layoffs or furloughs um, at a, almost a third, burnout uh, related to work and, and the intensity there very high as well, both around almost a third. Mental health, childcare and physical health or mental health also uh, in that one in five um, ratio as well. So pretty highly and, and consistent challenges here. Mental health has been, I think, an often overlooked challenge or, or underappreciated challenge historically. And we've seen an acute rise in mental health um, needs. And uh, in some cases, companies have stepped up in providing uh, resources for mental health uh, amid COVID, um, but many have not yet done so. So five broad challenges within COVID. We also asked a broad set of groups, um, all employees, men, women, we cut this both by gender, by age, uh, by life stage, uh, by race, of course. We asked them a broad range of questions in terms of, are you comfortable sharing how you're doing at work? Uh, what your concerns are? Are you feeling exhausted kind of more broadly, mentally, even beyond work? 
Are you burned out, maybe more professionally related um, and intensity of work? Are you feeling excluded from social uh, connections and, and networks at work? And what we see is that three groups in particular are disproportionately affected. So mothers of young children, no surprise, senior women, uh, so VP, SVP, and C-suite, those sort of last three levels of the pipeline that we were talking about, and Black women as well. And so let's talk about the ways in which those three groups in particular have been disproportionately affected by COVID. On the left side, 40% of mothers have added three hours a day or 15 hours a week, a solid part-time job to their already uh, pretty intense baseline. 40% of mothers have added 15 hours a week, 27% of fathers. And keep in mind this unequal add to workloads has been already off that unequal base that we were discussing earlier, right? So women do two to two and a half times as much unpaid care work as men. Um, so off that unequal base, you've got a pretty significant add given a lot of homeschooling. And this has led to one in four mothers worrying that their performance is negatively judged at work and also considering downshifting. For black women, uh, over half of black women are the only of their gender and race in the room. So the only black women on their team, 60% uh, more likely to hear demeaning remarks about them. Um, but here's also where the intersectionality of racial just representation and diversity in the workplace coincides with a lot of the health disparities that we see. Black women were two and a half times more likely than other women to report the death of a loved one during COVID and report that it was a big challenge. At the same time, they were 50% more likely to feel uncomfortable sharing that fact at work. So the confluence of a lot of different factors at play here, making both black women and black men more likely to step out of the workforce at this time. And finally, senior women were also disproportionately affected. And what we see in the data is that senior women take on a disproportionate role, both in terms of visibly championing diversity and being active, proactive mentors and sponsors to others, um, but also being visible role models within the organization. And when we dug underneath, uh, almost half of them, half of the senior women felt that they always had to be on, right? That they were always being watched and, and, and a representative for others, other women. Uh, and over 54% of them felt consistently exhausted um, given increased pressure to work more during COVID-19. So a particular watch out for those three groups in particular. I think there's a broad opportunity here um, as well to step up for um, black women. Um, this is the same kind of patterns are true for other underrepresented groups, but what you see on the right, far right side is that black women without allies do not feel like they can bring their whole selves to work, um, do not feel like they have equal opportunity for advancement. But when you have Black women and they feel they do have allies, their responses look very much like all other women in terms of engagement, perceptions of fairness, et cetera. And so how do we deepen and proactively implement allyship, not just for Black women, but for other uh, women of color as well? On the next page, you'll see an example, almost two thirds of employees self-identified as allies to women of color. And we said, wonderful, two thirds of employees are allies. Uh, how do you put that into practice? And on the bottom, what you see is that they don't actually put that into practice very much. Uh, women more so than men do put it into practice, uh, but overall, we all have a long way to go. So 8% of men had mentored or sponsored one or more women of color, 12% of women. Um, about a quarter to a third of them had taken a public stand to support racial equality, and a third to a half of them had actively listened to personal stories. And so how do we translate this verbal uh, desire to be an ally into action, I think is a big question for all of us. And finally, as we wrap up, I think COVID-19 has challenged all of us in, in a lot of different ways across 2020, uh, but there is, and upside, there is an opportunity here to reimagine work, right? More work could be done remotely. Uh, we could cut out more business travel um, and more employees are saying that they could work from home more flexibly in the future. And so how do we remove the geographic constraints, think about more flexibility for all employees and be more holistic in our support of employee well-being? I think is a, a window for us to really accelerate our progress here. And as we wrap up, just a few thoughts on actions that we can take. 
actions I think companies can take to accelerate progress on gender and racial diversity and actions that we can each individually take uh, as leaders in our organization. I think making work more flexible and sustainable, right? Making some of the, what might be perceived as temporary changes stick as we get back to the new normal is important. Taking a close look at performance reviews. There's been a lot of anxiety, particularly disproportionate anxiety uh, for women, LGBTQ, women of color um, at performance and being disproportionately uh, negatively affected during these times. Making sure those performance reviews are fair and equitable will be important going forward. And then minimizing unconscious bias. And we see this in recruiting. We see this in promotions. Uh, we see this in perspectives on leadership and potential. So as an example, I can give you all exactly identical resumes, right? Down to the bullet points that I write, the font size, the font type. And all I do is write John Doe versus Jane Doe or any generic male and female name. And the men, and for me, the kicker is also the women will ascribe better leadership and higher potential to this imaginary John Doe because we have been so socialized in our notions of leadership and potential that we imagine these people to be uh, quite different, in fact, when we're even given the same exact resume. And should Jane Doe put active PTA member or active parent, active parent teacher association member or other identifying information that she's an active parent, 87% less likely to get called in for an interview. There is a penalty for active parents. Should I give you two resumes that say John Doe versus Jamal Doe or an African-American name? That's an eight year experience penalty for the African-American candidate, 50% less likely to get called in for an interview. And John Doe versus Muhammad Doe, similar, four times less likely to get called in for an interview. And this is in an environment where we're all looking for diverse leaders and talented candidates. And I would say it's there, they're staring us in the face and sometimes we cannot see it for our own both unconscious and sometimes conscious bias. So there's a lot to be done there. Um, and the last one uh, would be strengthening employee communication. We've seen how important this can be, uh, particularly in challenging times. And then on the individual level, um, proactively broadening your sponsorship network. Uh, you saw how women's networks skew more junior, more female. Uh, proactively get out there and mix it up, mix it up more broadly and uh, proactively seek out others um, in your sponsorship network. And if you are a more senior leader, look across the organization and proactively sponsor others. Uh, and finally, I would ask for and give tough feedback. What we see in the research is that women receive less tough feedback than male peers. And this is corroborated when we ask people on teams as well as their managers. And we ask managers, you know, why don't you give the tough feedback to the women on your team? Because you're giving it to the men on your team. And they say, well, number one, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to appear mean. And two, I'm afraid of an emotional reaction. I'm afraid of tears. And if you compound that across a career, and if I'm not getting the tough feedback I need to learn how to run the business, then I'm not going to get the growth that I need across that career. Women today are still more likely to hear feedback on their style how they dress even in 2020, uh, then feedback about here's what you need to learn the business and we need to change that. And so personally seek that out. And if you're a leader and a manager, give tough feedback and positive feedback equally to all those on your team. So those would be some thoughts. Sri, over to you. Thanks, Quailin. This is, uh, you know, just amazing. The, the data that you've produced and this set so many insights and uh, of course, reinforce some things that I, we felt when we knew, but it is just interesting. What was the most surprising thing as a result of this survey that you found? Is there something that you didn't expect that came out from the survey? I think one of the biggest surprises for me was women of color in the C-suite. As, as a woman of color, I was expecting it to be much higher uh, than 3% of the C-suite, especially when you add Asian women, Black women, and Latina women all together. I think that was one big surprise. And then the other surprise was really over the years, how little the pipeline changes. It's, you know, 1% here, 2% there. Um, granted, these are large numbers, but just the pace of change and improvement is so darn slow. Um, that's a surprise and a real challenge. These are problems that have been, you know, centuries in the making, if not longer, frankly. So it will take us a long time to improve but I was hoping that the pace of improvement would be a lot faster. In that context, in the context of the pipeline, I mean, you show us this broken first trunk, and that is a real problem because if you don't have that 
first step up, where are we going to get the you know, C-suite women at the end of the pipeline? You know, what can we do to improve that? I mean, how can we make that, you know, that first rung is so critical. How do, what do we do to improve the situation there? Yeah, I think a lot can be done um, on the front end on debiasing kind of recruiting, but also promotion. So really embedding unconscious bias training in your people processes having an unconscious bias observer in the succession planning, the promotion conversations to make sure and ask tough questions like, would we have had that same conversation if that weren't a woman coming back from maternity leave or if that weren't a man in the very same aggressive leadership style as his successful mentor and challenging some of the unspoken assumptions that often go on. I think that's one um, big thing. I also think, you know, tying compensation uh, to it over time, not quotas, but sort of incentives, just as you would have for a leadership team. You know, there's three big goals that we're aiming for. Um, as an example, the previous CEO of Sodexo, Sodexo runs a lot of school cafeterias. They may run your cafeteria or hospital uh, and other large company cafeterias. And their CEO looked at their performance business unit by business unit. And their results were such that when a business unit had 42% or more diverse leadership, not just women, but diverse leaders overall, they did much better. They had higher profitability, higher growth, and higher resiliency in a downturn. And so he tied leadership comp to getting to 42% or more at the leadership level. And then that trickled down to your point to the broken rung and frankly, all those other rungs within the organization. Right. I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, you, um, also, you know, you've also suggested that, you know, the talent pipeline, the data that you have is pre-COVID-19. You know, what are your predictions? Because with the, you know, we're seeing more women dropping out of the labor force. I see the labor force participation rates all the time as, you know, on the Fed. And it's, you see a much greater decline in women's labor force participation in this COVID time. And I'm seriously concerned about what the long-term implications of that are. So, yeah. What can we do to reverse that? Is there a, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Sri, it's, it's absolutely true. I think the biggest thing is opening schools safely, of course. Um, what we know is that when women do step out of the workforce, and we've seen this in 2008, 2001, uh, they're stickier in terms of unemployment. It takes them longer to find a job and get back into the workforce. And so in September, when we saw the labor uh, numbers, 1.1 million people stepped out of the workforce in September. Think about this as coinciding with getting back to school, many in remote or hybrid school situations. Of the 1.1 million people who stepped out of the workforce in September, 80% of them were women, which is unheard of, right? Highly skewed to, you know, mothers with young children trying to manage one, two, three children at home. And I think that is the challenge three. So going forward, what will stick post-COVID, I think the faster we can get schools reopen safely and kids back in school, that will be the biggest unlock for women. Um, and then just making sure that they've got the support to, to get back into the workforce um, in the right sets of jobs. Right, and it's just, I mean, that's, you're absolutely right. I mean, this, this reopening schools and even just paying some attention to, you know, how, how do you kind of support childcare efforts as well, you know, as people are trying to work and look after children at the same time, I think all of that is really important. And, you know, what you said again about, the share of the housework. I think both of us are from dual career couple, couples. I have to be happy to say that I don't do most of the housework. So. <laughs> and maybe it just doesn't get done. But, uh, but you know, it's, um, that's an interesting uh, factor as well. How do we, you know, you know, what do we have to do with our, you know, with our sons, with our boys to make them sort of change how they behave? Or will that just, you know, any ideas on this front? Yeah. You know, I used to think Sri, that we would sort of grow our way out of some of these gendered challenges. And if you look at millennials and some of their attitudes, it is a little bit better than sort of older generations, but it's not all the way there. We will not just grow our way out of these challenges. These are things that need to be discussed, shared more equally um, across two halves, not, not just husband and wife, but whatever the family structure is, shared more equally, right? When we look at um, the share of unpaid care work that it's shopping, cooking, cleaning, it's actually about 85% of the time is that piece of it, shopping, cooking, and cleaning. Pre-COVID, only about 15% of the time was time spent with kids. And now that's sort of the part of the pie that has increased dramatically with many schools closed or, or at least in a remote environment. 
Um, and so, you know, I've often said who you marry is one of the biggest uh, deciding factors, not just in your personal happiness, but of course, also in your career and how you set that balance um, is so important. I'm the mother of three young daughters, a, a seven-year-old and five-year-old twins. Um, and some of the research around girls and how they think about potential and what they're capable of, um, I've spent a lot of time on. And so one of the bigger factors is whether the husband in a more of a traditional household actually does the dishes. So of course I've told my husband about this research. And so he'll be washing the dishes and then try to get maximum number of points from it. He'll be looking over his shoulder and then announcing to our daughters that they should be watching him doing, uh, doing the housework. So uh, I do think a more equal share of that makes a big difference, especially for, for girls and boys growing up and what they see. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one, uh, uh, I mean, on a more sober note, too, I, you know, it's what's really disturbing is this intersectionality between being black and being a woman. And again, how can all of us, you know, be those better allies? You know, how can all of us, you know, what, what can we do to make, you know, to make uh, those microaggressions kind of, you know, go away, disappear? I know you talked a lot about you know, unconscious uh, bias training. But uh, even beyond that, I mean, are there actions we can take to make sure that, you know, that, uh, you know, our uh, colleagues who are, you know, uh, uh, both, uh, you know, especially the black women colleagues are, you know, are, are supported? Yeah, I think what's important here is a bit of a shift, there's a set of things that you can do reactively. So microaggressions is one of them. You see a situation, you're in a meeting, you see somebody spoken over, or maybe nobody's paying attention to a great idea that they put forward. I think there's things that you can do in those moments reactively that can help a lot. And I think being more aware of them uh, and bringing them up can help. And then I think more proactively and, and maybe longer term, proactively seeking out a woman of color in your network, in your organization, could be even in another group that you seek out and, and help along the way. And it could be a conversation of here was my career path or you know, what's the career path you're most interested in? Can I help connect you to some of the right people just to expand what you're aware of and maybe make some early connections? I think that proactive lending your network to others who might not have um, the privilege of that kind of a network can make a really big difference as well. Great, I know there are a lot of questions in the chat and in Q&A, so I will, you know, uh, turn it over. But I think, you know, all your, your comments about you know, this, this idea of conscious inclusion is something that, you know, we do try and, uh, you know, uh, I try at least to make happen because, and it's for everyone, you know, it's, you've noticed people who are not speaking up and how do you reach out to them, make sure that their voice is heard or that credit for ideas goes to the people who originally kind of, you know, provided it, but it's, uh, Fascinating to see these things show up in such a large survey of uh, so many employees across, uh, you know, across countries as well. So th thank you for that. And let's turn it over to Q&A. Uh, Amy, are you going to be, you'll, you'll be reading out the questions? Yes, we've got quite a few great ones. Um, we did get, uh, the question does keep coming up, um, whether or not you will share the PowerPoint. And just to clarify, we will have a link for uh, the slides for today's uh, presentation, as well as a recording of the presentation on our website in approximately a week or so. So please look on our website for that. So um, we have a great uh, faculty member here at the Carlson School that says, I teach a course here at Carlson on striving for gender equality in international business. In fact, most of the students are here. Thank you for your work and research. We use it in our course. As these students go to their first jobs, what is your advice in looking for a company that supports this work? Absolutely. I think uh, the bar is rising uh, on companies and the tone that they set. Um, but I would actually say, you know, very few people quit the CEO of an organization. You quit usually your immediate manager. So as I look for a company, I would advise others to look at your immediate manager really, really hard and weight that, frankly, just as heavily as the company itself. So finding a company that you're excited about, that you can identify with the mission and feel good about the work that you do every day and the bigger picture of, of what you're aiming for, and then your immediate manager. Um, I think the third factor for me would be the CEO and the leadership team. Is it diverse? Is it forward-looking? Do I have confidence um, in that leadership team? But so much depends on your immediate manager. Are they thoughtful? Can they actually make your day-to-day -day work um, 
fulfilling? Can they create flexibility for you and make that a reality? I think those are the more important questions, especially early on as you're thinking about your career. And then as we described, will they give you the tough and good developmental feedback so that you can grow, especially early on in your career as you're charting out potential different paths? Thank you. Um, we have a question about what does the application process for non-traditional candidates look like? Um, I feel like we know what the process looks like for 24 to 34 year olds, but no one seems to know what the process looks like for experienced professionals who are 35 and older. It'd be helpful to get more information about this. And, and do you mean um, kind of across, across industries as you're looking for jobs? Um, I think wherever you have um, jobs that are less kind of at scale, right? That you don't have a very well-trodden path from business school or undergraduate uh, into that talent pipeline, it gets a little more challenging. And one thing um, that we've seen actually really help companies improve their diversity here is shifting from one diverse candidate on the slate to two or more diverse candidates on the slate. Um, so hopefully as, as diverse leaders, um, that can work to your advantage. But when companies do that, it becomes more of a debate between two great two or more diverse candidates and the hiring rate of the diverse person in that situation typically triples or quadruples. And we've seen that across a lot of different companies and industries. Thank you. We've gotten a couple questions about, um, you know, what is the race in quotes of the lesbians in your survey? How do you deal with intersectionality in your analysis? And then someone else also asked, you know, is there data on same-sex couples? Yeah. Um, so uh, lesbian could be of any race, um, and you could also, in some cases, be both a lesbian and a Black woman or a lesbian and an Asian woman, as an example. So if they click any of those um, categories, characteristics, uh, we had included in, in that category. Um, we do not have enough data, unfortunately, yet um, on same-sex couples or other we're thinking about by age, et cetera. Uh, we, we don't have any of those and actually HR can be quite sensitive, particularly on the age cut, um, but we're working more in that direction. And every year on this research, we add a couple of new dimensions. This year, of course, was a much deeper dive in COVID, but going forward, we're looking to expand um, in terms of intersectionality, sexual orientation, transgender, et cetera. Thank you. One of the questions is how many people received the survey and what was the survey response rate? Yeah, it actually um, depends. So it's um, over 400 or so um, different individual responses. The response rate varies by company. We ask that every company have at least four to 500 uh, responses. And it's a mix across different groups, different levels of seniority in the organization to make sure that it's statistically significant. So we ensure it's statistically significant at the company level and the response rates vary dramatically by company, um, but we aim for above 50%. Thank you. Um, Patricia asks, can you share more about what strengthening employee communication can do and why that is a proposed action you can take? Yeah. I think strengthening communication um, to employees can take a lot of different forms. One is just the transparency and the frequency of communication. I think we've seen a pretty significant increase, at least on average in, in that over the last 10 months or so, um, but also more inclusive communication, more thoughtfulness about different scenarios, different realities that people may be facing. Um, both, so both the frequency and what you're communicating on, uh, greater transparency and inclusion uh, in bigger decisions and challenges that the company may be facing, um, but also just a better, more inclusive approach to how you're communicating. Thank you. Um, can you also say more about why performance reviews are a part of your recommendation? What is the issue here? Absolutely. I think uh, performance reviews and I would say debiasing performance reviews are really challenging for the same reason that, you know, we would all look at that identical resume uh, for the male and female candidate and ascribe greater leadership and higher potential to this imaginary male person. Uh, the same thing happens once you're in the company as well. Uh, and so how do we make sure that when we're talking about leadership and potential and fit for a particular group or a potential step up role, that a couple things aren't happening, that we're not um, 
ascribing greater potential to male candidates by accident or certain races because we're so socially conditioned to think of leadership in a particular way as a tall white male versus other shapes and forms that it takes. But it also is true of different styles, right? Introvert versus extrovert is also very true. This world uh, often can reward extroverted styles and we have a harder time seeing strong leadership in introverted styles. So it's not just by gender, it's not by race, it's by style, um, all sorts of different backgrounds, socioeconomic background. I think there's a lot of dimensions that we have to be aware of when we're thinking about talent, how we identify it, how we assign, you know, sort of attach it or match it to future opportunities and how we fairly evaluate it in, in our people processes. So I led for a number of years our people processes in the Minneapolis office. And I think one of the most important things is to have an unconscious bias observer who's gonna ask those challenging questions that we were talking about earlier um, to make sure that we're viewing this in a really fair way. Well, would you have said that if it were a white man or would you have said that same thing if that were a very different profile and testing to make sure that we're really getting underneath the story and the example to, well, what was the impact what did they actually achieve? Um, let's get to the evidence versus a lot of the, the stories and other elements around um, the example that we're talking about. Lovely. Um, you talked about black, you talked about the impact of black women's, um, the impact that COVID has had, I'm sorry, on black women, but what has the impact of systematic racism protests and the unrest had this year? Do you have any data on that? I do not, unfortunately. I know this has been a, a big area of um, increasing research um, and interest, of course, but I have not seen any of the, the early data yet. All right. Um, let me see, picking the, the ones. Um, so Tom mentioned, well, I guess this is kind of a comment. He says, thank you very much for your time and attention to the detail your firm has spent on these issues. As a father of two daughters who are folks of color, I'm very passionate about accelerating continued progress, having the details to help drive change. And yes, I do the dishes and clean the bathrooms as well. <laughs> Stay well. And thank you. Are there additional things other than young girls seeing their fathers or uh, partners do housework that you might encourage uh, parents to think about? A couple things uh, that I do with, with my three daughters. One interesting thing just to test how deep these societal um, sort of concepts and how early they start is to ask your children to draw a picture of a genius or draw a picture of a scientist and see what they draw. Uh, unfortunately, most boys and girls will draw a man, a, a ma male genius. Um, you know, the other thing is uh, along the lines of, of washing the dishes, um, it's important what a mother does or a woman does in, in the household in terms of putting her interests below others. So for example, if on a weekend, um, I always say, you know what, I, I don't mind what we do, let's do whatever you wanna do. Or if I always said you know, to my husband, Dave, let's just do what you wanna do. And my children see that, I can say all that I want about gender equality, but if they see me always putting my interests and what I want to do below everybody else's interests, I think they internalize that. And there's been quite a bit of research done to say, let's have an equal open discussion, but you know, sometimes we're going to do what I want to do. And sometimes, yes, we're going to do what the kids want to do. I think what you do can be so much more powerful than what you say um, for better or worse. So a, a couple of different examples of things to do with kids. Yes, I think in that context, I mean, I, you know, I just like the fact that there's so many more dual career couples in uh, uh, around right now, because I think that does make a difference. Seeing your mother work, seeing your mother sort of put work, uh, enjoy working and uh, take joy in the accomplishments of uh, work. I think that makes a big difference to children as well in terms of what they're seeing, what they're observing and how they're figuring out how to grow up. At least in our case, I do think it's had an influence, you know, definitely on our son, for instance, you know, so uh, it's uh, that, 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 that I think is a hopeful sign for the future. Uh, anyway, thank you so much, Quaylen. I think these are just, uh, you know, your, uh, your insights were terrific and the data is just amazing. So, and thank you also for letting us share it with, um, with everyone who's uh, here. Um, I am, uh, you know, just a huge believer in conscious inclusion. If, uh, you know, if we can reach out and sort of uh, figure out how to ally better with, uh, with, um, 
you know folks who need who could who could benefit from it i think that's uh, that's a big first step and i would encourage everyone in the audience to think about that about who can they mentor who can they support how can they you know bet, be better allies in this whole uh, process so thank you for all of that uh, thank you, I, you know it's uh, we're almost at time i think and so i will um, uh, is there any last question, Amy? That's, is there a burning question you want? I think we probably still have time for a question. Um, one of the uh, questions that is coming up a, a bit is, you know, what do you think it is, you know, maybe in both of you that sets you apart in your careers that allows you to successfully climb the ladder? So you would love, would love your thoughts, but I would say, um, persistence and growing a thick skin over time. Um, just loving what I do as three described um, and feeling that I'm very fortunate to be able to work on things that I'm passionate about um, and persistence, right? Not, not stumbling too much or staying down too long when you get knocked down, which inevitably we all do. Um, just picking yourself up, dusting yourself off and, and keep going, especially for the topics and the areas that you care about. And I think having your kids see that as well uh, and your spouse see that is, is important. Yes, in my case, I think it was, uh, I don't know, maybe I was a bit stupid, but I didn't see barriers, you know? I mean, <laughs> it helps that you don't attribute every setback to a barrier, you know, that persistence and thick skin helps in that process. And, um, you know, just being fortunate to uh, have, uh, you know, to, to have uh, parents who gave me a lot of confidence. I think that was a big, uh, self-confidence is a big part of it because, you know, when you start feeling that the world is against you, then it becomes very hard to break those, break through. If, uh, if you ignore that noise and persist, I think you, uh, you know, there's a better chance that you can make it uh, forward. That's where, as at the individual level, but I think collectively we have to do a lot more to remove those barriers. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Quaylen Ellenbrood from McKinsey & Company. You can find more information about this podcast, including previous episodes on our website. Head over to z.umn.edu slash boardroom. I'm Jamie Plusser from the Carlson School of Management. Thanks for listening.